This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles, sitting in for Mike Simpson today. And as always, we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. Hence the name. Yes. (laughs) And (laughs) daily, too. (laughs) Wow. You know what? Something that's appropriately named. (laughs) Absolutely. Coronavirus Daily. So the first step in ending this pandemic is getting a vaccine out there, one that's approved, and yep, it's got to be safe. Pfizer is setting up the biggest ever vaccination distribution campaign. Now, they say the company has set up a supply chain to deliver up to 100 million doses this year and more than 1 billion around the world next year. We'll get into how this is all going to work and how you're going to get your vaccine. Yeah, it's going to be a monumental task. And and some of the vaccines, the Pfizer one I know in particular, requires it to be stored in like sub-Arctic temperatures. It's really, it has to be really, really cold. Kids and teenagers, by the way, uh, they may play a very important role in ending this pandemic. You know, there's a joke there, but I'm not going to go with that. (laughs) Health experts say that the virus cases around the world are rapidly accelerating. We'll tell you where the current hotspots are in this country and where to avoid. In the U.S., it isn't the only country where people argue over lockdowns. They're having the very same fight in jolly old England. Uh, do they call her Karen over there, too? Uh, no, they probably like Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's start with vaccine distribution. Are we going to get our heads chopped off for saying that? Off with their heads. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, well, Stan Bunger from KCBS in San Francisco spoke with Prashant Yadav. He's the senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. He's an expert in supply chains and explains how this vaccine will be given out across the world. It is uh, a humongous task. Um, both for the 100 million that you talked about, but certainly when we get to delivering billions of doses globally, uh, two things which are uh, extremely complex here. One is the fact that the vaccine requires storage um, and even during transport at minus 78 degrees um, Celsius, which is um, ultra cold. And that means we can't use the routine supply system, which consists of sending the product from the manufacturer to wholesalers, distributors, who then distribute it to clinics, retail pharmacies, the the doctor's office that we all go to. Uh, But in this case, this will require shipping directly from the manufacturer's site, whether it is Pfizer or the other companies which have a similar profile vaccine. And shipping direct means Um, almost on a daily or or multiple times a week basis, uh, sending this ultra-cold vaccine in specialized containers through a mix of air cargo, trucks, uh, specialized distribution sites, and the volumes uh, of the number of doses is quite large. So I think it is quite a complex. Do we we have enough airplanes, trucks, and, and pilots and truck drivers to do all this? So I would say if it was um, routine times, yes, we, we would have. Uh, two things are making this harder. One is, of course, um, the, the pandemic has created other kinds of disruptions in the logistics systems nationwide. But secondly, we are also coming close to the holiday season. 
and people aren't going shopping to retail stores and you know e-commerce volumes are growing so a lot of product is moving uh, for the holiday season in airplanes in trucks in distribution centers which will have to be shared in some ways uh, and that's putting a strain on the capacity that's Prashant Yadav, Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development. The next step for developing a vaccine is testing it on teens and kids. Now, that might help quickly end this whole thing and maybe get us back to something that we would think of as being normal. Well, you know the song, Children Are Our Future. Oh, I, I can't hum it, though, but yes, I know it. <laughs> you know it, but you can't hum it. That, yeah. You know what? Our audience appreciates that. <laughs> But this isn't without complications. Dr. Jennifer Schuster is a pediatric infectious disease physician at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Charles, you and Rob Archer asked her why it's so important to now start testing these vaccines on kids. Good reasons to think about vaccines in children. And the biggest one is that children account for over one fifth of the population in the United States. So just looking at it from that perspective, if we don't think about vaccines in children, then we're ignoring one fifth of the population, which is not insignificant, as you can imagine. We know from a lot of data that is coming out is that our adolescents and teenagers seem to spread the virus that causes COVID-19 just like adults do. And so this is going to be really important from a vaccination perspective to think about our teenagers and adolescents because they do behave somewhat similarly to adults when we think about spreading the virus. And then when we talk about our younger kids, so our elementary and preschool age children, these are also a really important population. So one of the things to think about is that vaccines in children are different than vaccines in adults. Children have different immune responses to vaccines. And so that's why we need to think about them differently. The other thing that's really important, and we know this from many of the other vaccines that children do get, is that vaccinating children actually has an effect on older people as well. And so we have a history of children getting a number of different vaccines, and we actually see decrease in disease in adults too. So it's like an added second benefit. So there's a lot of really, really good and important reasons to start thinking about vaccines in children for COVID-19. So the kids are making the adults sick. I heard you say it. <laughs> well, we do know that our teenagers are spreading this disease very similarly to adults. We also know that many of our young children aren't symptomatic or they have very, very mild illness with the virus. And so even if they are less likely to spread this virus than the adults are, that doesn't mean that they don't spread this virus. And I think, you know, again, when we think about children accounting for over one fifth of the population, that seems like a huge piece of the population to just blind ignore and not think about vaccinating. But are you concerned that uh, a lot of parents, because as you know, there's a, you know, I, I don't want to overblow it, but there's a, you know, a pretty hefty anti-vaccine uh, element in the United States, uh, coast to coast pretty much, uh, especially when it comes to vaccinating children. So are you concerned that even if one or more vaccines are deemed to be effective and safe, that a lot of parents are going to say, no, not my kid. 
Well, I think that that's why we need to start thinking about doing these clinical trials in children and not just taking data that we're getting from adults and just saying, oh, this will probably work for children or this will be okay. I think that that's why we have to think about studying these vaccines and start talking about how we're going to study these vaccines in children so that we can learn what the right thing is to do for these children and make sure that when we vaccinate, we are giving them a safe and effective vaccine. Thank you very much. Uh, That's Dr. Jennifer Schuster, pediatric infectious disease physician at uh, Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Coming up after this short break, the winter surge might already be hitting. Health officials have warned of a winter surge to hit the U.S. It might be starting early since it's still, you know, fall. The number of daily positive cases, close to 60,000, with officials saying the country is getting closer to rapid acceleration. That sounds bad. I was going to say, that does not sound good. No, you don't want to rapidly accelerate. No, I've seen what happens when my car does that, and nothing good can come of it. And, and we're doing this podcast from LA where in the freeways you can never rapidly accelerate. So yeah, you, <laughs> you can go from five to 10 and that's about it. Yeah. In about a week. Michelle Cortez is the health reporter for Bloomberg News. She spoke with Jennifer Kuyper at WBBM in Chicago about where the cases are spiking the most and where you need to avoid. The hotspots are across the South and the Midwest. We've seen the Midwest numbers rising consistently. It's a little bit more concerning right now in the South because those numbers had been coming down and they're starting to pivot back up. The concern, of course, is that the hospitalizations and deaths are going to follow that. And we're still early in October. So, uh, well, I mean, we're, we're still in October, not so early. But as we get further into the winter, we're expecting these numbers to just start increasing exponentially. What have you seen in your neck in the woods? You're in you're in the Twin Cities. So have you had any rollbacks on, on anything because of spiking cases or maybe on the other side of the line in Wisconsin? Well, there are definitely a lot of steps being taken in Wisconsin to try to lock things down. It is not looking good in Wisconsin. The numbers are also increasing in in Minnesota. And we are seeing increasing rates of, you know, concern about, you know, having schools and whatnot, you know, restrictions being put in place that hadn't been previously. But so far, we haven't really seen this, you know, statewide or nationwide effort to do things like go back into lockdowns, having major, you know, restrictions on people moving just because it's people are exhausted from having done this for for the past year. And it's going to get worse. We're going to have to figure out a way to, you know, to buckle down and get through this winter. How about Europe? Seeing spikes there as well? Europe is actually the worst that we have been seeing lately. They are hitting record numbers of cases, about double the number, you know, 120,000 cases a day. So really significant numbers over there. The U.S. is about two to three weeks behind that. So it's that kind of trajectory. Literally, if you look at a graph in Europe, the numbers are going straight north. So it is concerning across the world right now. Should countries still order lockdowns? A second wave of cases sweeping across Great Britain, which has lawmakers there wondering if more lockdowns are the right way to go about it or if restrictions should be eased. But there's also a middle idea, a scheduled preemptive short term lockdown. It'll last about two weeks. I don't know if that's too long or too short. We've been locked down now for eight months. So, well, what's another two weeks? Graham Medley is a professor of infectious disease modeling at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He spoke with Rebecca Carell from KCBS in San Francisco about how this short-term lockdown 
would actually work. So the basic idea of it is that if we're going to have to lock down at some point, then it's better to do it um, early to keep the prevalence low rather than do it as an emergency and to announce it so everyone knows when it's going to happen rather than announce it you know, on the day, which is what we've done before, and to tell people how long it's going to be so that there's, there's actually a known endpoint. What would that criteria be? What, what would COVID levels have to hit in order to enact one of these yeah. circuit breakers? So, that's, so at the moment, the, the kind of lockdown is a response to how bad it gets. Um, and that's what makes it a kind of emergency because you have to do it. But actually, you get the same impact, the same epidemiological impact, if you do it before you actually have to. So rather than relying on the disease going up, you say, well, the disease is going to go up. Let's do that break now rather than, than later when, when it's absolutely necessary. So, so it would just be scheduled. We're going to do this one, the next one on November 20th. Yeah. So you say, to, you say to the population, right, first two weeks in December, we're going to be in lockdown. And then that gives everyone a chance to prepare for it. It means that it's only going to be two weeks. And, and you don't actually, you're not then in a the pressure of not knowing when you're going to come out. Uh, and it makes it more bearable, potentially. And do you, what do you base this on? I mean, how do we know it would, you know, cut deaths? So we know in the UK at the moment, all the areas of the UK have this exponential increase. So the, so the infections are going up everywhere. And we have this tiered system so that when you get into tier three, you're in some pretty restrictive measures. And essentially everywhere is going to end up in tier three. Um, and they won't know how long they'll be there for. But if you take some areas which have low cases at the moment and say, actually, if you do two-week lockdown now, that, that will delay your movement into, into Tier 3, um, then that, that potentially is a good thing. It, it all depends on the fact of if you're going to have to do this lockdown, if, if that's the policy, then do it earlier. You know, and one of the things that upsets people the most is uncertainty. And so if they know when it starts and when it ends, perhaps they'd be more compliant? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, who knows? Um, that could go either way, because one of the reasons that we get compliance potentially is because we can see the hospitals are full and we can see the number of people dying. Uh, and, and so one of the problems might be to persuade people that you actually need to do it uh, before you need to do it. Uh, it's a bit like going to the doctor and the doctor saying, yes, there's something wrong, wrong with you. I'm going to perform surgery. I'm going to make you iller in order to make you better at the end. And, you, and it's that kind of process. You're doing something before you absolutely have to to prevent things getting much worse. That requires such a leap of faith on the part of uh, people. Yeah, and it, and it will take some learning, but, you know, we are learning. Um, so, so there is regions of Wales in the United Kingdom. They are doing that at the moment um, because they, they can see that the numbers of cases is going up. They know they're going to have to lock down in, in a month or so, and so they're doing it before they absolutely have to. Um, and, you know, people will learn from that experience and watch it, um, and, it, and it, could weigh, it could make the whole process much more bearable. And where it's being done, is, it, is this the first time? Um, I, think the, I think the Republic of Ireland is also doing something similar as well. Um, but, but I think in the rest of Europe, it's really a question of what, what happens is, is the prevalence goes up, um, and as the prevalence goes up, stricter and stricter measures come in until essentially they're in lockdown, um, as they were back in March, in some form or another. And then you don't know, and then you don't know how long that's going to last, um, and that just makes it um, so much more damaging. I think.
Interesting idea. Thanks for talking to us. Ken, guess what I'm what I'm what I'm doing now? Pretending to be Homer Simpson? <laughs> no, I'm trying to, to, to simulate gargling because it turns out ma- mouthwash might be the next thing flying off store shelves. I don't know Did if you they've like been around my apartment. <laughs> I don't know if they've been around my apartment complex. It should have shuffled off the shelves a lot sooner than this. Well yeah. Well here's the thing. See, it turns out that mouthwash possibly, possibly could kill the coronavirus. Researchers at Penn State University found mouthwashers basically killed like 99.9% of the viruses after only 30 seconds. Now, they found similar results using a solution of 1% baby shampoo, which is often used by head and neck doctors to rinse sinuses. The scientists say mouthwash isn't a cure, but they do say maybe maybe it could reduce the chance of transmission from a sick person to a healthy person. I gargle with my Listerine every day, and I guess besides good breath, maybe that's why I haven't got coronavirus yet. And by the way, we are not saying you should gargle with baby shampoo. No. Don't do that. Don't do that. Not baby shampoo, not bleach. <laughs> Definitely not bleach. <laughs> but, but it's okay to gargle with mouthwash. And yes. look. It'll help your breath be minty fresh. <laughs> and if it helps prevent coronavirus, that's just a, you know, a, a happy Hakuna Matata. <laughs> if you want it, you can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on the Radio.com app, um, in the Apple Podcast Store, Google Podcast, and Stitcher. And please be sure, if you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. Excuse me while I gargle some more. <laughs> <laughs> <Like Homer Simpson. laughs>